Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thank you. Thanks, Maddie. Thanks to everybody for coming. I moved to L.A. Um, a year ago, year and a half ago almost. And so I'm really glad that people came out. Thank you so much. You guys are my friends. <laughs> I made friends. It's nice. And thank you, Christina, for the beautiful flowers. Um, so I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from the book. Um, so I, I started writing this novel at a particular period in my life. Um, I had just graduated from Columbia University and I had been writing a different novel while I was at Columbia, which I couldn't find representation for. Um, and for a while I wondered whether I should share that publicly, but I think that it's important for people to know that, you know, just because you see a published book that says it's their first book, it's not necessarily like a lot of us have failed books stuck in drawers somewhere. Um, and I was given the advice of a professor of mine who said that you should maintain a shitty job after graduate school, something like waitressing, um, in order to keep yourself hungry. I think that this is terrible advice. <laughs> um, I'm not going to name who the professor was who said it. But... Um, I didn't have a lot of other options, so I listened, more or less, and I became a nanny in New York City on the Upper East Side, primarily. Um, this novel is not um, about my nanny experience. I, I just want to clarify that I am not the narrator. <laughs> I think that's important to note. But um, it is definitely inspired by the, the time and the place and um, also that feeling of hunger and envy and resentment that I experienced while I was working. Um, I spent six years working on this novel and six years as a nanny. And um, meanwhile, I guess I just want to get started by reading a couple of excerpts about hunger. And it is dinner time, so maybe you guys can relate. <laughs> This is, both of them are from very early on, so I don't think it's going to give anything away. I never signed a contract. The wife handed me house keys with a flippancy I found unnerving despite my desperation. I'm going to maybe take this out. Hold on. There we go. I held them the whole way back to Brooklyn to reassure myself I had indeed been given the job, that there had been an agreement, fingering the ridges until my sweaty palms smelled of metal. The ring had a leather strap attached featuring a monogrammed L that made me wonder if she'd given me her own set by accident. 
I was still clutching them, the strap wrapped around my index finger, when I sat down at a bar and ordered a drink that evening. I gave the bartender my credit card and said, keep it open, thinking I might just leave when I'd finished. The card was maxed out by then. He could have it. I'd had such a long list of jobs. All the girls I knew got the same start in the world. We were hired part-time as hostesses or maybe retail associates. The jobs were all essentially the same. Stand around, smile, look pretty, look thin, look stylish. I was told, you are the face of this establishment, which was given to mean I was the first person customers would see, but really meant I was nothing more than a face to them. Those positions made the mind shrivel. Reading was not allowed, even on the slowest of days. Sitting was not allowed. I would envy the servers just for being able to walk around. Standing still was what made the ache in my feet noticeable. The clock ticked, the same songs repeated. People came, they complained, or they didn't. They left, and then, when I quit, I was left with nothing, no savings, no unemployment, no severance. My reflection in the mirror behind the shelves of alcohol had dark circles under the eyes, thinned out cheeks. Walking around Crown Heights had started to give me a terrifying awareness of my body. It was brittle, milky, weak. I could feel the hip bones showing through the skin. It wasn't that I felt like a child, it was worse, I felt like a patient. My summer sundresses transformed into hospital gowns. Everyone around me looked very strong by comparison. I'd been surviving for weeks on bodega coffee and prepackaged pastries, those little glazed things, more chemical than food, more air than bread. That afternoon, right before the interview, I'd used my pocket knife to slice open a ripe avocado because I'd read somewhere that a person could survive, however deficiently, on avocados alone. The knife had been a gift from my dad on my 12th birthday, and it had been blunted on twigs and sharpened again and again in the woods around his house. One summer evening, I made a small trap out of sticks and twine, placing food carefully inside. After dinner, I found a rabbit stuck in it, its blank eyes blinking at me. I picked the animal up by its scruff and quickly snapped the neck, then slit the throat. I was testing myself. My mom had decided to become a vegetarian and had explained it to me this way. I could never kill an animal, so why should it be all right to have other people do it for me? I hadn't expected the blood to spurt out the way it did. I returned home covered in it and had to explain to my dad what I'd done. Though I'd felt all right walking back from the rabbit's tiny grave, a lump formed mysteriously in my throat when I had to justify my actions to someone else. I wiped away tears, unsure if I was embarrassed by my actions or my emotions. My dad laughed at me and tossed me a kitchen rag. When I remembered the rabbit now, I was filled with a useless regret that I hadn't cut off the muscle and eaten it. But a beer on an empty stomach had a wonderful effect, a combination of much-needed calories and alcohol working together to numb everything. I tried to keep myself from gulping. The bar was new. Thin wood paneling ran up the front wall from the tall backs 
of black cushioned booths and curved around the ceiling like the inside of a sailing ship. The man sitting next to me was a cop, his sturdy frame filling out the Navy uniform. This place, he said, raising a hand to gesture at the room. I know, right? I replied, excited to have someone talking to me. It had been a long time since I'd been out with anyone. It had been a long time since I'd been out at all. You live around here? Yeah, pretty close. He nodded, ran a hand over his shaved head. I used to work in this neighborhood in the 90s, he said. That's where they put the new guys. We were on Franklin on my first week, on Franklin and St. Mark's. We turned the corner, and some guys had these girls tied to a lamppost on the street. These guys were chucking bowling balls at them, fucking crack cocaine. They were playing nine pin with a group of screaming girls, stopping traffic, and no one even called us. We just walked in on that scene. That wasn't very long ago, I said. And now you live here, he replied. I didn't think anything about the story of the girls tied up on Franklin. What I did think about was getting this man to buy me dinner. I studied his body, the bulk of his shoulder muscles under his uniform, the sharp, clean-shaven line of his jaw. I guessed he was in his 40s, though it was hard to tell. His dark skin was unwrinkled. My name is Ella, I said. Tell me more about Crown Heights. I cradled my chin in my palm, looking at him wistfully. I'm from very far away. He gave me a side eye in which I could see him sizing up my body as well. He took a swig of beer and then said, you know about the riots. Everybody knows about the riots. I didn't know what he was referring to, but I nodded. No, let me tell you about something else. He squinted at me. You know about the Leroy family? A bead of condensation dripped from my glass onto my leg. I felt it trickle all the way down to my ankle. I shook my head. They ran a church out of a brownstone around here but it wasn't a real church. It was more like a harem of women. The pastor was this guy, Rev Leroy. He liked them young. The girls would dress up like nuns and go beg for money in the subway. They had all kinds of this guy's kids. Nobody understood how so many kids fit in that house. There were rumors Leroy made them, made them keep them upstairs in cages. When one of the girls wanted out, she disappeared. This went on for years. They finally busted Leroy and found out where he'd been dumping the bodies. Where? This land he owned up, up north somewhere, in a lake. He killed some 19 girls. Thing is, his son still runs the church. Supposedly it's squeaky clean now, but I'd stay the hell away from it. I looked down and found my bar stool was rocking back and forth and my beer was gone, though it didn't seem like enough time had passed for me to drink it all. It was quite a twisted story by way of introduction, but I didn't care. I still wanted to have dinner with him. The cop turned to the bartender. Another round, he asked. I couldn't stand the thought of more beer, so I ordered a gin and tonic. Tonic was supposed to be good for nausea, wasn't it? I laughed, repeated the word tonic. It was going to restore me. The cop looked at me out of the corner of his eye again. I put my hand on the bar, fingers splayed, my new set of keys hard and sharp against my palm. You just come out here to have a drink alone, I said. I drew out the word alone, trying to make it sound sad. 
It's not hard with that word. Could ask you the same question. We stared at each other. My little legs had somehow become entwined in his big ones. It just happens that way when you're at a bar and turn toward each other. The bar stool was still rocking underneath me, but at least it was good for something. I said, do you want to get out of here? Get some food? He didn't answer, but opened his fat wallet, paid both our tabs, and drank the rest of his beer in one gulp. The bartender handed me back my card, uncharged. Outside, twilight was gathering, but the air was still warm, the warmth swimming around me. My legs felt watery. I was so weak, I was evaporating. I wasn't sure I could make it to the restaurant. I grabbed his arm, a gesture disguised as flirtation, but really meant to steady myself. He laughed. You okay? I smiled at him, my face indolent, droopy. I'm great. Hungry. Let's get you some food. As we walked, I felt him reach over and pull down my skirt in the back. He did it quickly, not saying anything. I didn't feel embarrassed. I was still holding the keys to my new job. That was the important thing. On Nostrand Avenue, we ordered roti at a counter. There were stacks of cake and clamshell containers next to the register. I asked for one and then took out my wallet, even though it was empty. He put a, a hand on my hand, pulled out his own again. I smiled and couldn't stop smiling, though it made my sad, weak face hurt. I was going to eat on someone else's dime. I commended myself. He was such a good find. Cops want to take care of people. I thanked him, patted his arm, a little overeager, but what did it matter? I realized as we sat waiting for food, I had no reason to continue speaking to him. He'd already paid for the meal. Counter service was a good idea. Rather than waiting through the whole meal to see whether he would ask to split the bill, I made a mental note as I snapped open the plastic cake container, not caring what he thought about me, eating it before the other food. The frosting was the kind of sweet that made my teeth feel loose in my skull. I ate it anyway, all of it, gobbled it down. It was a good thing the roadie took so long to come, or I probably would have devoured that as well and thrown it all up in the street. I'd never had roadie before and had to watch the cop to figure out how to eat it. I followed his lead as he unwrapped the tinfoil and ripped off a bit of thin, unleavened bread, using the piece to scoop up the chicken and potatoes inside. I was delighted when I bit into it to find the bread was flaky and soft and the chicken tasted of butter and curry. Then my teeth bit into something hard. There's bones in there, the cop said, watching me. I didn't look at him. I just spit the bone into my hand, set it down on the table, and went back to eating. It was enjoyable, using my hands, fishing out the chicken bones. I didn't give a shit what I looked like to this cop since he'd already paid for all this good food. Girl's starving, he said as I scooped up bite after bite. I've hardly had a minute to eat today, I said, my mouth full. I realized then that he hadn't asked me a single question about myself. Didn't he wonder why I hadn't eaten all day? Didn't he wonder what I did for work? Wasn't that the question that everybody asked? When the food was gone, I was very full. I was grateful to him for providing me with this lovely, full feeling. I didn't feel I owed him for it, but I felt like repaying him anyway. He had a good face, friendly, wide-set eyes, and perfect white teeth. It was dark outside. I slapped a mosquito away from my leg as we stood together on the curb. 
The 17-year cicadas were supposed to hatch and outnumber the city's population 600 to 1 that summer, but they never came. The eggs had died, the newspapers said. We'd filled too many vacant lots with condos. Mosquitoes were already swarming in their place. Subway's that way, he said. I pulled on his thick arm and said, yeah, but I live over there. We didn't say anything else. He was kissing me by the time we got to the front door of my building. His lips tasted of curry and beer. I held his head between my hands, the keys pressing into his cheek, thinking it was wonderful to have a man walk me home at night. I was so obliged to him. He didn't ask why my bedroom had no real furniture, and I was thankful for that, too. He just pinned me on my futon mattress in the dark. It was good, friendly, and nice, like his face. I knew I wouldn't see him again. Thank you. I've got one more very short thing to read. I'll maybe say, uh, since my parent, this is the first reading that my parents aren't at. The last time, the last thing my dad said to me was, "Don't take home any more cops." <laughs> Just want to clarify that I, again. I'm not the narrator. Um, so this next part is from. Um, a chapter just a little bit after this. This is Ella's first day at work. She's nannying for a woman named Lonnie. In the kitchen, Lonnie poured milk from a gallon jug into a bottle. Our last nanny wanted to transition him off the bottle when he turned one, she said, but he was still asking for it after she left, so I just gave it back to him. She pointed to a fruit bowl on the counter. You can cut some up if you like. And make coffee, too. Eat any of our food, any time. Obediently, I boiled water in the red kettle on the stove and poured grounds into a French press. I also warmed some milk for William's oatmeal and cut a banana into chunks. As I worked, Lonnie said, We've had some problems with nannies in the past, actually. She balanced William, still vacantly sucking his bottle on her hip. She was heartless, our last nanny. I looked at her, but she didn't go on. Instead, she moved toward the fresh coffee like a moth toward light. We can go out to the terrace, she said. I hate eating down here in the dark. Before following her up the stairs, our food loaded onto a bamboo tray, I turned and grabbed a peach for myself, just the right amount of yielding underneath the skin. I ran the fuzz back and forth under my fingertips while we sat in the sunlight on the terrace. It was my first peach of the season. Lonnie stripped off William's onesie, set him in his high chair, and handed him a spoon. He set to work trying to eat the cereal. Most of it landed on his naked belly, but he didn't mind. The terrace extended past the living room, taking up the remainder of the lot. Below us, on either side and to the rear, I could see the narrow, well-pruned backyards of neighboring houses. Lonnie sat in front of a palm that rose up over her head. She twisted her hair into a bun, holding it in place with a raised arm, turned her face to the sun, as if photosynthesizing her breakfast. I never saw her eat more than coffee and fruit in the morning, and that first day was no exception. She seemed content at the table, though, whether eating or not. She didn't say much, so I didn't either. 
She was still waking up, and I liked the silence that fell between us as she did so. It was as if to say, we'll be spending a lot of time together, no need to rush things. I held the peach to my nose, savoring the anticipation. At one point she said, you know what you're doing. I'm not the kind of mother who hovers or tells you what to do. You can do what you feel like with him. There will always be cash inside the cigar box on the table in the foyer. You can buy him or yourself whatever you need. Toys, coffee, food. I don't want you to spend your own money when you're with him. I never want you to want. Okay, I said, thank you. She watched me bite into my peach and smiled. They're delicious, aren't they, she said. They're not usually good yet. I used my hand to wipe a dribble of juice from my chin and nodded, calculating how much cash I could reasonably take from the cigar box, how much food from the cupboards in order to eat dinner that week. I could feel myself starting to believe her, to trust her, to earnestly like her, though it might have just been the promise of nourishment. Not being hungry felt the same as being happy. That first week, after the peach, I devoured a square of bread, toasted brown, soft on the inside, slathered in a thick smear of salted butter with a French label. I followed it with raspberries, placed on each fingertip and popped off, one at a time, into my mouth. I ate thin slices of sharp cheddar and gruyere, letting them melt on my tongue. I started simply, like a child, and with time, moved on to forkfuls of sour kimchi, chili jam on nutty crackers and garlicky green olives. I took to eating during William's nap times in order to fully concentrate on the food, training my body to register hunger between normal meals. Food was better than I remembered, not just because I was ravenous, making up for lost time, but because Lonnie purchased only the best of everything. All the produce ripe, sweet, juicy, fresh, mostly from local farms. The eggs gave up bright orange yolks, the likes of which I'd never seen. They tasted almost like a different food, they were so rich. Once, craving the crackers I tried not to finish off that afternoon, I went to Dean and DeLuca after my shift and found the tiny box cost $10, which came out to more than 50 cents a cracker. One day, watching me struggle, Lonnie showed me how to cut open a mango, avoiding the hard middle, then running the blade along the flesh of the two sides in a crisscross pattern. I imagined the knife sinking into her hand as she cupped half in her palm, pictured her blood like juice. When she bent the slice back so all the little cubes of fruit popped out, ready to be cut free, I exhaled a delighted laugh. Not quite done, she said, picking up the middle and carefully slicing the peel off all the way around. When the ribbon fell to the cutting board, she brought the pit to her mouth and sucked at it, scraping what was left of the meat away with her teeth. She handed it, half-eaten, to me, and I put the slippery thing to my own mouth, juice running down my hand. Thank you. I can answer some questions if anyone has questions. Yeah? Um, so this is just going based on what you said, so it's really not a question. Um, what, what do you 
Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much any of us consciously think about anything as we're writing, but we do recognize, you know, the patterns afterwards. And, um, as I was, as I was writing it, um, I will say that I was interested in the blurring of boundaries, like, um, love versus obsession. Like what is the boundary between those two things? It's very, very thin. And then obsession to violence, you know, what is the boundary between that? It's also very thin. Um, yeah, I, w I was interested in just exploring the, the intersections between all these different things. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Um, so I actually fudged the timelines for, uh, for the Leroy, wh who's actually um, Doc Legrand in, in Crown Heights, to, uh, to work for the story. And um, I, I started writing about this. So basically how I found out about the story in Crown Heights, a girlfriend of mine um, was walking around the neighborhood. This, this house, by the way, is like right over by the Brooklyn Children's Museum. So it's, it's in a very strange spot for this house to be in. But, um, and she was, she was catcalled from the window in an especially creepy way. And meanwhile, there was a beat cop on the corner who saw it happen and walked over to her and said, um, you know, don't, don't walk by this house. And, and she said, um, why? <laughs> and he said, just Google it, just look it up. So she Googled the address of this house and it turns out that there's this whole long history of this serial killer that was around in the 70s um, who you know, had devised this whole system of living um, without having to do with the economy, basically. Like the reason that I'm interested in this story is because it does present this alternate um, this alternate economic system that could be very interesting, especially to like lower class people at the time um, and lower class women that didn't have a lot of autonomy or power. Um, I actually think the story is a lot more interesting than m the story of Manson, which we hear all about constantly. Um, not very many people know about this particular serial killer. But for a long time, I didn't really know exactly how it was gonna work itself into the story. Um, it took really until I finished the narrative and found like particular ways to, to interweave it for me to understand why this was coming together. And yeah, I think it does have a lot to do with, with economics and with, uh, with women's options, um, in particular time periods. Um, yeah. Does that answer the question? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah.
Um, I had this idea. So I think I, I started thinking about this as a collection of short stories first, actually, because I think it's really intimidating to think about a novel as a, a, this super long thing that you have to get through the whole thing of. Um, and I was, I had, you know, I'd finished writing the book that didn't sell. <laughs> um, and then I was like, well, searching for a project, I started writing a couple of short stories, basically from Ella's perspective. So I think I developed the character before I developed the story. Um, and then I was at a um, dinner party. I was working as a nanny and the family that I worked for had told me to go over to the neighbor's house that night because they had invited me and the little girl over to play with their daughter. And it was very awkward for me because I was the only nanny there and they were offering me wine and sort of treating me as if I were a, an adult and a parent and I really didn't know how to behave in this situation. And then um, the following Monday I was back at their house um, having a play date with the little girl's nanny. So it was, you know, me and their nanny. And I had told her that I had been over there on Friday with the parents and she was, she was just massively confused. She was like, why would they have invited you over? Um, and essentially it was because I was white. I was a white nanny. Um, this, this other woman was Hispanic and so she received different treatment than I did. And um, I'd started, it started me thinking about this weird middle place that I occupied as a white nanny um, and how interesting that could be in terms of fiction because you're simultaneously the servant and also you're given privy to so many intimate situations and details um, that you might not otherwise be. And so I was originally going to put the uh, the dinner party into a scene, but it never made it in. <laughs> it's just how these things go, I guess. Yeah. I was definitely worried about it. Um, I do think that any time that someone tells you that they're a writer, that that should maybe be fair warning enough. <laughs> and I was definitely upfront about the fact that I was a writer and working on a novel. So, you know, if you're, uh, your boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, uh, employee, employee or employer say that they're a writer, you should fully expect that you might, you might work yourself in there. But, um, I uh, I did email the family that I worked for primarily on the Upper East Side, and I was very, very nervous about that email, just saying, like, hey, here's what the book was about that I never told you about. Um, and they got back to me just saying, don't put our names in it. <laughs> but that's great. So, <laughs> um, I they, you know, if, if you actually read it, you would understand that it's not, you know, it's not them. If anything, there's there's inklings of people that I didn't nanny for who ended up in the book. It's sort of, it's, it all ends up um, kind of like a dream 
you take different things from your your waking life and then sort of mash them together into this thing that makes this new kind of sense doesn't make the same sense as in reality For this particular book, I think it would be a lot. Um, it's definitely not based on my nanny experience, but it is like, I don't know, 90% inspired by it. Um, yeah, I mean, I was thinking I was thinking about the job and I was also thinking about these sort of um, magnetic women that I've known throughout my life in, in all different kinds of spheres and, and places. I mean, I will say that I, I, you know, I started out saying that was really crappy advice that my professor gave me. And I do think it is because it feels very much like, like just stay poor and, and that'll be fine. And that feels like more of an excuse not to pay writers than it does actual career advice. Um, and also the fact that, you know, very few people make it solely on their writing. So you should develop other skills and other jobs and other places to pull inspiration from. Because um, I think the idea of being like only a writer is, is so rare. Um, but so, so I don't know. I mean, I do, and since I did pull so much inspiration from my shitty job, I can't completely uh, discredit it. But I also think you, I would have pulled inspiration from, from anywhere else as a writer. Writers always do. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, I, I reference um, uh, quite a few horror movies throughout, which I know we are both very interested in. Um, I reference, uh, at one point, um, the characters watch Anibaba, which is sort of a horror movie. It's like a, a, an old Japanese film that's on the been re-released on the Criterion Collection. And um, it's about these two women who are luring men into their um, homes in feudal Japan and then stealing their armor or their goods and dumping them in a gaping hole in the ground that's never really explained. Um, it's an amazing movie. Definitely drew some inspiration from that. Um, and also from writing too, um, I'll mention Alexandra Kleeman's You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine. Um, it's a very different sort of novel, but it has a lot of like female friendships and sort of the the borderline obsession, like becoming each other um, kind of themes that show up in here. Um, there's also a scene where uh, one of the characters eats an entire ponytail that <laughs> is the only scene like that I can name throughout all the history of art. And so I very much respect it. Um, 
and also uh, books like Elaine and um, Marlena, also like a lot of female friendship, um, obsessiveness, goodness. <laughs> yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. I didn't, not so much my friends, because my friends are all very open-minded people. Um, my parents, I didn't let read the manuscript until it was sold and edited. And and I I don't, like, they're, they're very nice parents. They're very open-minded. Um, and I know that, um, you know, they've read a lot of my writing before. But just having that familial relationship always makes it a little bit awkward. But... Um, when I told, or when I asked my mom what she thought about it, I was like, you know, I was kind of nervous to have you read this. She said, why? And I was like, well, I don't know, it's kind of weird in their sex stuff. And she was like, Madeline, all of your writing is weird sex stuff. <laughs> she was like, I've read your writing before. <laughs> so I guess they were fully prepared for it. <laughs> all right, thanks everybody. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.